Amen. This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. Now with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 16. And as you make your way to the 16th chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to set the stage for our study tonight. It'll first help us to remember that we actually find ourselves in the middle of a heated discussion uh, as a man named Job was defending his integrity against the unfounded accusations of his friends. I'll remind you, it was back in the beginning of this book where we learned about the days when Job became the target of a fallen angel known as Satan. As a matter of fact, Satan attacked Job's family, his flocks, as well as his physical health. And then after hearing about the pain and the suffering that their friend was enduring, that's when Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they all decided to go and provide Job with the counsel that they believed he needed. Throughout the first third of this book, we learned about the way that these men each took their turns accusing Job of living in sin, and the evidence for their accusation was based on the fact that Job was suffering all of these trials and troubles, and And so they just thought that this must be God's punishment, therefore Job must be living in sin. After each man presented their perspective, Job would then respond to each man by defending his integrity against all of their allegations. And then, it was in our study last week, that's when we learned about the day when Eliphaz kicked off his second round of accusations. And uh, this included the allegations that Job had become a crafty deceiver, that he was a pride-filled sinner, and and that he was just too stubborn to repent and get right with God. What Eliphaz and his friends were failing to realize was that Job truly was a blameless and upright man who feared God and shunned evil. And it's here in our text tonight where we find Job. He's defending his integrity once again against the false accusations of his friends. And at the same time, we also find Job struggling to understand the reason for why God decided to destroy his family, his finances, and his physical health. You see, he's still operating under the assumption that God is the one who was behind all of these things. Well, as we consider the way that the counsel of all four of these men uh, was coming from a, a skewed perspective on each of their parts, Uh, We're also going to spend some time tonight contemplating the difference between wise counsel and the advice that comes from those who darken counsel by words without knowledge. Well, with this as the focus, let's pick up our overview of this incredible book. And as we turn our attention to the 16th chapter of Job, I want to begin our study there at verse 1. Here we read, Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end, or what provokes you that you answer? Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Job, he's referring to his friends here as miserable comforters. And let's be honest, that's exactly what they were. They were miserable comforters. Remember, they came to him under the guise of providing him with counsel that was sure to comfort him, But rather than becoming his comforter, they became his accusers as they tried to convince him that he deserved the afflictions that he was enduring and the only way to escape was to repent and get right with the Lord. Simply put, Job's comforters were actually false accusers who arrived at Job's house with their own agenda. They arrived with their own agenda and after watching Eliphaz kick off this second round of unfounded accusations, 
Well, we shouldn't be surprised by the question that Job presented there in verse 3 where he declares, shall words of wind have an end? Shall words of wind have an end? Sick burn. In other words, you know, Job here is asking, is there no end to your long-winded words? Will you ever stop talking to me about your perspective? Without debate, Job was wishing that his friends would just leave him alone. That, that he would just be happier to just suffer in his own misery without the addition of all of the counsel. And yet this didn't stop them from gearing up for another round of false accusations. It's for this reason that Job asked Eliphaz the reason for this ongoing interrogation. Will you ever stop talking, Eliphaz? And then he wanted to know what, what the driver was here. Notice again there in the second half of verse 3, there again he asks, what provokes you that you answer? In other words, what's provoking you that you're, you're continuing to testify against me? I, I just presented what I thought was my final defense, and now you're kicking off this second round of, of accusations. Why? why? Why do you want to go through this? More simply put, Job wanted to know what was driving his friends to continue their condemnations all in the name of trying to comfort Job. I'll remind you that these guys had promised to provide him with comfort, and and with this as their goal, they assured him that the Lord would restore him if he would simply repent. The only problem with this counsel is that Job wasn't practicing unrepentant sin. Now, Now, we all stumble every day. We all struggle with sin, but... But Job wasn't practicing unrepentant sin. Therefore, those miserable comforters, they were only adding to his misery by engaging in false accusations against him. Christian, listen, you know, before we become miserable comforters ourselves, we'd all do well to consider the driving force behind the counsel that we're trying to give. In other words, what's the real reason for why we feel the need to step in and become another person's counselor? If the decision driver for being someone's counselor is self-centered, if it's narcissistic in nature, well, then you should probably refrain from handing out the pride-filled prescriptions that so many love to present. Because listen, fleshly pride is usually the reason for why so many Christians become miserable comforters. Pride-filled hearts will lead us to think that we've got the answer for everyone, and so we have to jump in and, and, and give our two cents every single time there's a conversation. And it's sad that there's no shortage of miserable comforters in the church who are quick to insert their personal opinions. And to prove my point, I just invite you, you know, after church tonight, just go look at the comment sections on any social media site. Just, just go look at the comment section. I try not to. I often, uh, you know, uh, don't, you know, because I've, I've got important things to do. But, uh, but if you go and look at any comment section on any social media site, especially, you know, go look at some of the Christian sites, and, and you'll just see just, you know, one person will ask some advice about some issue in their life, and they're looking for some sort of biblical input, and it doesn't take long for these comment sections to fill up with just unbiblical advice of miserable comforters who don't have a clue of what they're talking about. With that being the case, we should all check our own motives. We should check our drivers before you know, jumping in the fray and presenting our perspective. 
we should take a moment to ask, are we sharing the counsel that comes from the Holy Spirit, who, remember, is sent to serve as our comforter? The Holy Spirit is our comforter. And if we're offering comforting advice or counsel, then that will come from the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. So is our counsel coming from the wisdom of the comforter? Are we counseling according to the divine wisdom of God, or are we simply sharing our finite point of view? Listen, if the Holy Spirit is in fact leading us to provide a biblical perspective, then we ought to share those scriptures. We ought to share that counsel with those who are struggling. But listen, if we're just trying to be the hero because we have some sort of narcissistic savior complex, well, then it's probably best to just restrain ourselves from assuming that we are the ones who need to jump in here and present our counsel. Listen, God can use anybody. And, and, and you know, I'm pointing this finger at me as well. God can use anybody. He doesn't need us to present counsel. And so what drives our need to jump in there and give our two cents and, and be the person who... Listen, if, if we're just wanting to be the center of attention, then all you'll be is a miserable comforter. Let's refrain from assuming that we need to present our counsel at every moment. And, and then we can avoid the mistakes that were made by the miserable comforters of Job. And in order to further explain my point, let's continue to consider the case that Job was making against his friends. And I want to pick up our study of Job 16, beginning there at verse 4. Here Job declares, I also could speak as you do if your soul were in my soul's place. I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's challenging his friends about their approach. And while he was quick to point out how how easy it actually is to sit in the seat of the scornful and and wag the finger and shake the head and and look down the nose at people, you know, it's so easy to, to sit in that seat of judgment and condemn those who are suffering, He informs them about the way that he would respond if the tables were actually turned. He's saying, hey, if if I was the one, you know, sitting in a place of comfort and you were the one who was suffering, I, I would go about this all differently. Rather than shaking his head against them, rather than wagging the finger and looking down the nose, Job says that he would relieve their grief with comforting words. Now listen, I can appreciate the fact that Job was trying to teach his friends how to provide words of comfort, and yet at the same time, he was also making the mistake of thinking that there's a one-size-fits-all approach that should always be used in every counseling situation. That's just not a good position to hold. There's not a one-size-fits-all, this-works-every-single-time sort of situation you know, for counseling all people. And to prove my point, we should take some time to consider the mistakes made by the leaders at the church in Corinth. I'll remind you, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There we find Paul. He's actually rebuking the church there in Corinth. And the reason why is because they were failing to exercise church discipline on a brother who was involved in an adulterous affair with his stepmother. And they were pretending like they're this you know, liberal church and so loving and so accepting and so tolerant. And, and Paul says, you're blowing it. You need to kick that, that sinning brother out of the church. Paul instructed them to rebuke him and cast him out of the church. He actually says, turn him over to Satan so that he can go learn to repent. And so that's what they did. They followed Paul's advice and they, 
rebuked him. He didn't receive the rebuke, so they kicked him out of the church. And that's the way a church is supposed to function. Those who are living in unrepentant sin, those who are practicing sin, well, they need to be rebuked, and if they don't receive it, they need to you know, eventually be kicked out of the church if they continue. But then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we discover that the same carnal Christian had finally repented of his sins. But rather than receiving him back into their fellowship of faith so that he could be restored, the Christians in Corinth refused to engage in the ministry of reconciliation, and they kept him out of the church. And it's for this reason that Paul in 2 Corinthians, it's in chapter 2 where he tells them that, that they need to reaffirm their love for him by allowing him back into the congregation because he's repented. Why continue to punish those who repent? From this we can see here that there's a time to rebuke, there's, there's a time to counsel people with, with a stern word of rebuke, and there's a time to restore them with, with comforting words. There's a time to castigate and there's a time to comfort. There's a time to reprimand and there's a time to reconcile. And it's for this reason that those who want to provide proper counsel must stop leaning on their own understanding of thinking that they've got this one-size-fits-all program that you know is always words of comfort or always words of rebuke. Listen, if, you're, if your counsel is always rebuke, then chances are half your counsel is wrong. And if your words are always comforting and loving and gracious and we accept you and love you and these sorts of things, then chances are half the time you're wrong. Because there's a place for both of these. And it just depends on the situation itself. That's why we have to stop leaning on our own understanding. We have to stop you know, running with our own agenda. And instead we need to seek the leading of the Holy Spirit who was sent to help us and comfort us. At the same time, it's also important for us to understand that good counsel will always be based on a proper perspective of our Creator. And while many Christians are quick to seek the counsel of secular therapists, it's important for us to understand that the disciples of Freud and Jung, well, they can't really address the real issue that we're wrestling with. Just to be clear, listen, our real issue isn't with a withholding mommy who really did, did a number on us when we were babies or, or, or a distant daddy who didn't love us in the way that we need to be loved. And listen, that, you know, there is a problem with all of those things. I don't mean to downplay it, and, and yet, is that the real issue? Is our real issue that our daddy was too distant? Is our real issue that our mommy just, you know, loved us too much and never, never challenged us? Is our real issue based on the repressed instincts of the personal unconscious or, or the inhibited impulses of the collective unconscious? Is this really our problem? Listen, the, the real problem is this, and let me just boil it down very simply for you. The natural mind of man prefers personal autonomy. The natural mind of man prefers personal autonomy. We don't want to be told what to do. And that really is the issue. We don't want to be submissive servants. We want to be kings of our castle. Or queens, whatever. Whether we realize it or not, listen, the carnal mind of man is at war with God. Plain and simple. God wants us to do this, and we don't want to do it. Listen, just, just tell me what you want me to do, and that'll be exactly the thing I don't want to do. 
55 miles an hour? What about 60? What about 64? That's the one where you don't get a ticket, right? Stay off the grass? I'm walking on the grass. We don't, we don't want to be told what to do. And so ultimately this, this comes back to our war with God. And, and listen, the carnal mind is at war with God. And this is still true of the born-again believer who continues to wrestle with the desires of the fallen flesh. It, if you as a Christian think that you still don't have a fallen mind that is pursuing carnal cravings, you're, you're deceived. Paul himself encouraged us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's what Paul says. The Christian still has lusts of the flesh that, that we can now overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit, providing that we're walking in the power of the Spirit. And so Paul encouraged us to do just that, to, to, to walk in the power of the Spirit so that we can crucify the carnal cravings that constantly beckon us back into the bondage of sin. Sadly, though, our fallen flesh still lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit continues to wrestle against the flesh. And with that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that Christians continue to struggle with the concept of complete submission to our Savior. And listen, this is not only true of the backslidden believer. You know, the backslidden believer is the one that's returning to the bondage of their favorite sins. They, they escape through the conversion, uh, you know, by faith in Jesus Christ. Then as they're, they're heading through the wilderness, they start thinking back to Egypt. And they're missing the leeks and they're missing all the goodies and all the, all the fun times they had in Egypt. You know, building the bricks and these sorts of things. And they start longing for that, and so they, they turn around and head back to Egypt, though they're set free from that bondage. You better believe that the backslidden believer is still struggling with their carnal mind, which refuses to submit itself to God. But at the same time, this is also true for the Christian who serves the Lord. They're, they're, they're at church, you know, Sunday, Wednesday, any other day that they can. You know, they're serving. They're always here doing the things. And, and yet their heart is still filled with, with bitter envy. And, and the reason why is because while they've been serving God faithfully, God still hasn't given them everything that they've been praying for. They, you know, they've been praying for a spouse, or they've been praying for a new job, or they've been praying for a raise, or they've been praying for a Maserati, or, or they've been, whatever it is, you know. And God hasn't given it to them yet. And they're, they're still struggling with some poverty. And so the, the heart can become bitter with, with this idea that, well, I've done everything right, God, so why are you withholding what I've, what I've prayed for? And it's sad that there are many who are following in the footsteps of Job because that was Job's heart. You know, Job did all the right things, and here he is suffering now, and he's mad at God because he did all the right things, and it just resulted in suffering. He's got that no good deed attitude going on. And there are many Christians who struggle in the same way. They continue to wrestle against uh, the, the providential plan of God, which places them in a position of, of service without all of the wonderful benefits of, of the nicest home and the, and the newest car and all these sorts of things. 
If that's what you're struggling with, then we need to consider Job's reaction to the accusations of Eliphaz so that we can better understand this heart of the person who is serving the Lord faithfully and yet mad at God because they didn't get their way. Notice with me again here in Job chapter 16. I want to begin reading at verse 6 because here Job goes on to declare, Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? But now he has worn me out. You have made desolate all my company. You have shriveled me up. And it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. Now here in these verses we find Job struggling to find relief in the midst of this situation in which he was suffering. And according to him, you know, his grief-filled ranting brought him no relief. You know, he, he vented, he, 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 he expressed his you know, disappointment with God and, and no relief. And then he sat in silence and no relief. And so whether he vents or whether he sits in silence, there's no relief. And, and, and Job was unable to find a moment of solace from all of his suffering. And the reason why was because he was struggling with questions about God's purpose in the pain that he was enduring. Listen, if you want to suffer, then just start asking the why questions. Why God? And, and, and you think God has to answer you? You think that God has to answer your why God questions? You can't just simply submit to God and say, you know best, I know nothing. Have your way. Because that's where the real peace is found. God, you know best, I don't have a clue. Do what you got to do and help me to just rest. But Job wasn't willing to rest. He had questions for God. He's looking for you know, an interrogation with God, which he's going to get. And that's when he's going to cover his mouth and sit in silence and let God just work him over. But for now, he's still struggling with his questions, and, and, and these are the questions that are robbing him of peace. To prove my point, let's take another look, beginning at verse 7. Here again, he declares, but now he has worn me out. You have made desolate all my company. You have shriveled me up. And it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. Me, 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 me. It's all about me. Job truly believed that the Lord was the one who was making him weary. And his mind, in his mind, God was the one who had devastated his family, who had you know, uh, wiped out his company. Job was unable to find rest for his weary soul because he couldn't simply submit to the providential plan of God. He simply couldn't accept what God had allowed in his life. To further explain my point, let's continue to consider the way that Job struggled with this situation. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 9, Here Job cries out, he tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. 
Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's wrestling with the thoughts that God actually hated him. And while we know that this wasn't remotely true, we also know that that Job was struggling to make sense of the reason for why the Lord was persecuting him after he had done everything within his power to, to walk in a righteous manner. And yet here he's saying, God must hate me. And I'm guessing that we've all felt that way at some point in time or another. Like, why would God allow me to suffer in this way? Does he hate me? It's real easy to find ourselves wrestling with that question. And listen, Job was not only thinking the Lord was persecuting him, but he was also beginning to believe that the Lord was the one who raised up his friends to come and falsely accuse him. And it's for this reason that Job referred to the Lord as his adversary. Now, who is the adversary? Well, that's the devil. The adversary is Satan. And yet here Job is beginning to think that God is his adversary. Job was beginning to think that God was trying to antagonize him by sending these men to falsely accuse him. And not only that, but Job was also wrestling with the belief that God had delivered him into the hands of wicked people. Let's consider how he puts it here. Beginning at verse 11, he declares, God has delivered me to the ungodly. And turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He also has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. Here in these verses, we find Job, he's assuring his friends that the Lord was the one who delivered his family into the hands of the wicked. I'm guessing that he's referring to the way that the raiders had come and, and, and destroyed his flocks and, and, and killed his servants and these sorts of things. And not only that, but he felt like a chicken. It says that he took me up by the, by the neck and, and shook me to pieces. I remember watching my grandma do that to a chicken one time, but that's probably another Bible study. But that's how he feels, like the the Lord just picked him up by the neck and just snapped his neck. He felt like the Lord had placed a target on his back and then sent his archers to surround him without any mercy at all. And then then the Lord ordered them to pierce him through with all of their arrows. And I'm guessing he's probably referring to the boils that covered his body. By this point in time, these boils were probably oozing with, with infectious pus and and it's probably just, you know, soaking all into his clothes. And just thought I'd share that with you. But he goes on to describe this there in verse 14 as wound upon wound. That's how he felt like God was just wounding him upon wound upon wound. And without debate, Job was filled with great grief, which seemed to be, to him, suffering without end. And all of this was happening despite the fact that Job was, in fact, a God-fearing man who had shunned evil and and had done everything that he could to to be a blameless man in his sight. And, And knowing that that's true of Job, I want to consider how Job goes on to defend his integrity here in our text. Look with me there at Job chapter 16. We'll pick up at verse 15. Here he declares, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed 
from weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death, although no violence is in my hands, and my prayer is pure. Here in these verses we find Job, he's attempting to appease God now, and he did this by putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes. These were signs of repentance, signs of a broken heart. He speaks of the tears that he shed as he found himself in the shadow of death. And still he defends his integrity here by insisting that his hands were clean. He says, there's no violence in my hands. I've I've done nothing wrong. He says that his prayer is pure. He's not coming before the Lord with another agenda, another motive, I should say. That's all, folks. (laughs) He was holding fast to his integrity. And yet at the same time, listen, it's also true that he was darkening counsel by words without knowledge. Yeah, he, he, had not, he, he wasn't a violent man. He, he wasn't shedding blood. He, he was praying with a pure heart. But he was also darkening counsel by words without knowledge. As a matter of fact, as in Job chapter 38... That's where the Lord accuses him of this very thing. He, he answers Job out of the whirlwind and says, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, Job really wasn't allowing the counsel of the Lord to guide him into the truth. Because in his mind, God's the one who's guilty of doing all of these things to him, when in fact it was Satan. And he was so busy presenting words without knowledge as he continued to vent his feelings that he failed to recognize that his perspective of God was skewed. Therefore, there was no real knowledge in his words. Now, in light of Job's example, it's important for us to understand that those who offer counsel from the same skewed perspective of God Well, we're also going to darken counsel by words without knowledge. When we start off with a skewed perspective of God, and and when we think ill of God, when in fact he's done nothing wrong ever, then our counsel is going to reflect that skewed perspective. In other words, listen, you can't think that God is out to get you while simultaneously presenting good biblical counsel. And if you're wrestling with bitterness because you did everything right and God allowed you to suffer anyway, if you're wrestling with with hurt feelings because you believe God afflicted you with wound upon wound, well then it's probably best to recognize that your counsel is going to be just as skewed as your perspective on God. And, And if that's true of you, don't counsel. Don't counsel people until you get your perspective straightened out. At the same time, listen, this is also true of the people that we're seeking counsel from. So, on the one hand, you know, we should make sure that our heart is right before God before we try to counsel other people, but when you go out and seek counselors, what are you looking for? You're looking for someone that just tells you what you want to hear? 
Or are you looking for someone who will challenge you with good biblical counsel? Please trust me when I tell you that those who have a skewed perspective of God, they also will darken counsel by words without knowledge. And yes, this is not only true of those who prefer secular psychiatry to, to, to biblical instruction, but this is also true of the believers who have become bitter because God allowed them to suffer the trials and the troubles of this world when, in their mind, they did everything right. If you're looking for counsel from someone with a skewed perspective on God, you're going to get counsel that includes a skewed perspective about God. With that being the case, we'd all do well to surround ourselves with wise counselors. And I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 15. It's verse 22 where he declares, Without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Or in other words, Those who surround themselves with wise counselors, these are the people who will be established in the Lord according to the wisdom of those who are able to present us with the divine instructions of biblical wisdom. Sadly, though, the church is filled with Christians who, well, they're not really interested in biblical counsel. And the reason why? Well, it's because we love our autonomy. And we just really want to do whatever we want to do, and we don't want anybody getting in the way of that. And so it's kind of like, you know, why don't, why don't guys ask for directions when they're lost? You know, why won't, why won't they pull over to a gas station and ask somebody to help them understand a map? Eh, autonomy, pride, foolishness. just easier to pull over and say, hey, I'm an idiot. Can you help me to figure out where I need to go? So much simpler. But no, it's just better to sit in a car with, with the spouse and argue than to seek good instructions, right? And this is what we do spiritually. I'll figure it out. I don't need anybody else knowing my business. Well, God knows your business. And then on top of that, do you not believe the Bible? Now, now before you Greta Thunberg me and and start saying how dare you and whatnot, listen, listen again. Without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. How quick are you to go get counsel? Because if you're not quick to go seek counsel from from you know Christians who who are able to provide it then do you believe the Bible, that your plans are going to go awry? If you want your plans to go awry, then by all means, just keep making your own decisions and believing in your own autonomy and thinking that you're the smartest person in the world, nobody can tell you nothing, and these sorts of things. And Have fun. I can't even tell you how many, how many times I've seen it happen. We need wise counsel. We need accountability. We, we, we need to surround ourselves with those who know the Lord and who know his word. Not only that, but we should also look for counselors who have a relational connection with our mediator. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 16. We find ourselves there beginning at verse 18. Job declares this, O earth, do not cover my blood and let me cry. 
Let my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Now, here in these final verses of this chapter here, we find Job, he's crying out for a mediator. He's crying out for a mediator who was able to plead his case before God. And listen, this wasn't the first time that Job realized that he needed an advocate who could plead his case before God. I'll remind you, it was back in chapter 9. There, Job first recognized this problem. He did this by declaring, For he is not a man, speaking of God, he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on both of us. In other words, he's saying, Hey, how can I defend my case before God if I'm a man and he's God and there's no mediator between the two of us? He's asking, who's able to step in and provide mediation between God and me? And in this, he's starting to realize that he needs a mediator. And we see him advancing this idea now here in chapter 16, where he says in verse 21, Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. He's looking for a mediator. I'll remind you, it was during our study of Job chapter 9 when we considered the solution, which is found in our Savior. I'll remind you, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. There Paul informs us that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In other words, God the Father sent his only begotten Son, to become our mediator. And knowing that we're all guilty before God, listen, Jesus didn't come to argue our case. Please trust me when I tell you that Jesus does not stand before God the Father and say, look, Father, I mean, they're all innocent. They're, they're all good to go. No. He didn't come to plead our case because we're guilty. Instead, he came to create a new covenant so that sinners can be saved. The old covenant condemns us. The old covenant of the law says, here's the things you ought not do, and if you do them, you're guilty. And guess what? We did them, and now we're guilty. Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to create a new covenant. He came to create a new covenant that is written in his blood so that sinners like us can be saved. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in Hebrews chapter 12. It's verse 24 where he says this. He says, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. In other words, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that provides us with a new covenant, a new contract between us and God and those who will by faith embrace this new covenant, trusting in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we also benefit from the mediation that our Messiah provides because in Christ, we've received the imputation of righteousness and in Christ, Jesus can then turn around to the Father and say, innocent, justified. Why? Well, because Jesus received the punishment that we deserve 
for all the sins that we've committed. And therefore, in Christ, we enter into the new covenant by which we're justified and set free from the guilt of our sins. In this way, Jesus provides mediation as our Messiah. Now, with all this being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord Jesus has solved our conflict with God by becoming the mediator that Job was crying out for during the days of his suffering. And I'm certain that Job came to realize that the promised Messiah is our mediator. And the reason I say this with complete confidence, it's because of a statement that James makes in the fifth chapter of his epistle. It's James chapter 5, verse 11. There he declares, you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Here in this verse, we we find James uh, assuring us that Job did in fact receive the compassionate mercy of the Lord. And in light of this, and knowing what the hall of faith says, I think we can be certain then that Job did in fact benefit from the mediation of our Messiah as he looked forward to the cross with his hope in the promised Messiah. Now, as we consider the way that Job sought mediation uh, from an advocate who could stand in the gap between God and man, I encourage you to realize that the best counselors then are those who have received the benefits of our Messiah's mediation. If you're looking for wise counsel, then you ought to look for someone who's wise enough to recognize their need for a mediator, much like Job recognized his need. And listen, those who are currently rejecting the mediation of our Messiah, they're not wise enough to give me counsel. And I would argue that they're not wise enough to give you counsel either. And the reason why is because they're not wise enough to receive the counsel of God's word, which helps us to understand our need for salvation. I think Paul sums it up best in Romans chapter 1. It's there where he informs us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, notice, suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." From this we can see that those who are actively suppressing the truth of God in their unrighteousness are unable to provide us with wise counsel. And the reason why is because they've become foolish. And listen, the world is filled with unbelievers who truly believe that they're wise. They profess to be wise. And yet Paul assures us that those who reject Jesus have become futile in their thinking. And as a result, their foolish hearts are darkened. That being the case, I can't help but to wonder, why would a Christian seek counsel from those who are actively rejecting our Redeemer, actively suppressing what we know in our hearts to be true? Because we love our unrighteousness. Why why would we receive counsel from that kind of a person? 
Why would we seek counsel from a counselor who's rejecting the mediation of our Messiah? Why would we receive advice from miserable comforters who don't know the one who ordained the spirit of wisdom and counsel? Why would we seek comfort from those who don't know the comforter? With these questions in mind, I encourage you, surround yourself with wise counselors. Not just counselors. Counselors are a dime a dozen. We need to surround ourselves with wise counselors. And just to be clear, wise counselors are Christians who have embraced our Messiah. They've received the Comforter, the Holy Spirit of God. Wise counselors are, are those who have a good grasp on God's Word, not someone who's a novice, not someone who's just learning the Bible. Let's, let's look to, to those who actually understand God's Word and have a grasp on Christian theology. And wise counselors are those who are able to rest in the providential plan of God. And yes, even when we don't fully understand God's plan. Knowing that there's going to be times when we're struggling to understand the reason for why the Lord would allow us to suffer in the ways that we, we do, I encourage you, surround yourself with wise counselors. Counselors who understand the, the rest that comes in simply submitting to the authority of our almighty God. And as we receive the counsel of wise counselors, let's trust that the Lord is going to use them to help us so that we can walk in the wisdom of God. And as we walk in the wisdom of God, he will help us to then turn around and become wise counselors for somebody else. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank